Cultivating Place is made possible in part by generous support from the Caddo Shaw Foundation. This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. This week, we complete our four-part conservation series kicking off 2023 by taking a broader look at the Klamath River's namesake region and looking at the importance of knowing any place better from multiple perspectives for the most effective and durable conservation to be truly possible. We're in conversation with Michael Kaufman, research plant ecologist, educator, and founder with his botanist wife, Allison, of the ecologically focused Backcountry Press, and Justin Garwood, environmental scientist for the California Department of Fish and Wildlife with a focus on fisheries. Michael and Justin have spent the better part of the last decade curating and editing a cohort of 34 expert contributors to a new and really the very first comprehensive natural history of the Klamath Mountains, one of the most biodiverse temperate mountain ranges on earth. Justin and Michael, I am so delighted to be speaking with you both about this project. Welcome to Cultivating Place. Thanks for having us. Thank you, Jennifer. You know, I would love to have each of you introduce yourselves again to listeners from your own perspective, what you do and what your organizing principle or your relationship to plants at this time in your life might be. Let's go ahead and start with you, Michael, whom listeners have heard from before. Yeah, sure. So I'm, I like to call myself an educator, author, and ecologist. I wear quite a few hats, but I've been a lifelong educator with the top level goal of connecting people to the natural world. And I've done that as an environmental educator, as a fifth and seventh grade teacher. I've taught kindergarten through college in some capacity through my career. And I've woven that into the creation of some books with Backcountry Press, the author of Conifer Country, which was my first book. And five books later, we have this natural history book. And I've also been an ecologist with the California Native Plants Society mapping and inventorying uh, vegetation communities across California. Excellent. And let's move to you, Justin. Can you give us this same sort of distillation of what you do and how plants figure into this? I'm a biologist, and I usually focus on aquatic um, habitats for, for fishes, amphibians, and reptiles. That's basically been my career, is focusing on, you know, uh, assessing status and trends of populations that are um, in decline. Um, but also, um, I'm also a naturalist at heart. I always have been. And uh, I plants are, are interesting because it started out when I was very young. My mother is a is a pretty much a master gardener, um, self-taught. So I've been around plants my whole life. And my mom spoke lots of Latin to me. And then I would also, you know, experience plants around um, the setting I grew up in, in a very remote area of, of um, Trinity County. So uh, mm. plants are more of a long-term thing that connects me to my family, but also um, I have a, a kind of a naturalist interest in them. Okay. I love that you've already moved us into this idea of um, where this love or calling comes from in your own life. So let's stick with you for just a second, Justin. You were born and raised in Northern California, in Trinity County, part of what is covered by this book, The the Klamath Mountains, A Natural History. And your mother was an avid gardener. Where did you go from there? Did you remain in the region um, this whole time, getting your uh, advanced education and your early career work? I left the area and I stumbled through junior college until I took a few really seminal classes that changed my whole um, approach to you know what I wanted to do. And it was a few biology courses that really um, impacted me. And it went from being more of a naturalist to to being really intrigued with with evolution of you know living things, mm. and it really changed my path to become a biologist. And I 
kind of came back to my homeland. Um, I volunteered for a summer doing um, high mountain lakes, amphibian and reptile surveys. I spent an entire summer immersed in natural history in the Trinity Alps, um, including mm -hmm. the plants. And it really set me on a path that said, this is what I need to do. Mm -hmm. And so where did you go off to uh, like start your biology work? And how long have you been back in the area doing your career work? Um, I moved back to the region. I live in Humboldt County now, which is just west of the, actually some of the Klamath Range is in Humboldt County. But I live on the more mm -hmm. of the coastal edge. And um, that was back in 1998 when I came up here. I went to um, Cal Poly Humboldt, got two degrees. And um, yeah, I got a, a, I've worked locally um, on salmonids and, and high elevation um, habitats for amphibians and reptiles for the last 20 years. So you have a very long-term and consistent relationship with um, these lives and this place, which is great. Let's go over to you, Michael, and remind listeners a little bit about this same kind of trajectory, because you know, everything that I have spoken with you about before, whether it was Conifer Country or Dudleyas of the Coast or your editorial and ecological work with the California Native Plant Society, they've all been kind of aggregating into the knowledge that I think I'm seeing in Justin too, that is coming together to inform this new work. Tell us a little bit uh, or remind us of this trajectory, Michael. Sure. So I grew up in Virginia and my mom was also a master gardener. And I think that that was my early experience with natural history and connection to place and, and understanding the plants in our backyard. We grew up uh, or I grew up on the swamps of Virginia near Jamestown and uh, would sneak down to the edge and, and explore the tidal areas, uh, find critters, and, and then bring stuff home. And my mom and dad and I would talk about it. And then in high school, I was lucky to have a natural history class. And the teacher took us out. We wandered uh, through the swamps again with hip waders on and we learned all the trees. And I think that was the real seminal piece for me is, is that place-based connection. Like I remember learning a, a persimmon and that you could actually eat the persimmon and it grew wild. And for me, that was like this crossover from gardening for food mm. to wild harvesting. And and that was big for me because that, that uh, allowed me to go right into college. And I studied uh, macrobiology. I studied the big stuff. I studied the mammals and the birds and the trees and the plants at Virginia Tech. And what I realized during that time is I wanted to share that love with other people. So I was lucky enough to find a job in California right after college at an environmental education school in Tulare County. And being at these schools, um, teaching with other naturalists, being able to explore with people on the weekend and have these shared experiences and knowledge being shared um, for places like the Sierra Nevada or the desert or the transverse ranges really solidified my love of natural history, particularly my love of California natural history. And uh, everyone I worked with went to Humboldt State for their degree, and I realized I needed my teaching credentials, so I moved to Humboldt in 2002 and was lucky enough to get my teaching credential and find employment. And then, uh, you know, I've had lots of other uh, people that have helped along the way, including John Sawyer, who is an um, ecologist at Cal Poly, who encouraged me to get my master's degree. My wife was is the real botanist in the family, <laughs> and she's taught me so much. And then just crossing paths with Justin uh, in about, I think it was 2010 or 2011. And uh, we really connected uh, around the natural history, the place-based natural history of the Klamath Mountains. And that just that grew ultimately, you know, I guess we're 10 years, 12 years later into this book. Yeah. Well, and um, I love your referencing of the the persimmon because, of course, in our region in Northern California, it is not a native wild tree, uh, but where you grew up in uh, Virginia and, you know, a lot of the Eastern United States, all, all the way maybe over to even I don't know, as far west as Kansas, I think, uh, we, we have the American persimmon and that crossover between wild edible foods and 
uh, ecosystems is such a rich little seam in, in our world. And I think it lights up a lot of people wherever we might be. So take us to the point, Michael, where you found uh, with, with I believe, your wife, Allison, Backcountry Press, with the sort of stated mission of the press. And then we'll get to, again, this idea of aggregated knowledge. Yeah, sure. So so Backcountry Press was formed in 2012 when I finished Counter for Country. Counter for Country turned into my master's thesis mm. at Cal Poly Humboldt, and it was the first master's in the biology department in 25 years that did not have data involved with it. It was the first natural history in 25 years. I'm going to stop you right there because I want to. I want you to define this term that we keep using. All three of us have used it, and it's a common enough term, but I want you to unpack a little bit like what it means versus what other phrases for this same kind of body of work might mean. What do you mean when you say a natural history, Michael? Yeah, sure. Well, let's start with the first thing. Natural history is a verb in my in my opinion. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's a practice of <laughs> attentiveness. It's a way to see the world, right? And it's really the practice of paying careful attention to the world, where whatever part of the world that is. And then I think most importantly, falling in love mm. through natural history. Mm. And um, you have that same mission with gardening, yeah. right? But, yeah. but natural history develops this relationship and humans have always had it. It's how we've survived. And many would argue it's the oldest continuing human endeavor. But there's never been a time uh, when so few people uh, have had a relationship or have practiced the verb of natural history. So what does natural history help us do in this day and age? Well, it helps us to see patterns and relationships. And then I think most importantly, our place in the natural world. And through, through natural history, uh, whether it's gardening, whether it's you know just your backyard, it's a way to heal. And it nurtures love, like I said. It creates a caring. And then really in the long term, this creates a vision of sustainability for our place individually and, and as a human population in a place that we love, right? In the Klamath Mountains, for Justin and I, this is the gift that we want to celebrate and we want to share love for. I love that. And I think that's true. That idea of natural history being a verb, which is going on around us all the time, whether or not we see it and are consciously relating to it unconsciously, we are always relating to it. And so we might think, especially as gardeners, I think um, there has for far too long been this divorce between our gardens and the places we live. But when we can make that relationship visible and tangible, then it's much easier to work with your natural history instead of against it and have it help you with your gardening and have you help it with its survival. That's where we are in this point in the world. And I think that visibility is key to how beautiful this book is and key to the worldview that we can then hopefully extrapolate out into wherever people might live whether it's the Klamath Mountains or not. So Backcountry Press was formed in 2012 with the mission to enhance the human connection with the natural world through easy-to-understand science and direct experiences in nature. And I think what I found with that experience in getting my master's degree without data is that this is a way to communicate with more people. Mm -hmm. And not to say that that, that scientific papers that analyze data, that's, there's nothing wrong with that. It's super important, but they don't necessarily reach a broad audience. And I think that by taking that master's thesis that I knew was peer reviewed and solid, I had I felt the comfort level that I didn't need, say a bigger publisher to do it. I could do it myself. Printing technology was shifting at the time. And we became an independent publisher that explores natural history and ecology in the Western landscape and tells stories. And I think that storytelling piece is super important to connect uh, us all again with a love for place. 
This is Cultivating Place. We're in conversation this week with Michael Kaufman, research plant ecologist, and Justin Garwood, environmental scientist with a focus on aquatic life. The two men are co-editors of a cohort of 34 expert contributors in a comprehensive natural history of the Klamath Mountains, one of the most biodiverse temperate mountain ranges on Earth, with lessons for us all in evolution, in diversity, and in adaptation. As the introduction to the book notes, a region's natural history is available to anyone who attends to or pays attention to it. Stay with us. We'll be back for more. Cultivating Place is made possible in part by the Caddo Shaw Foundation. The Caddo Shaw Foundation funds initiatives that empower women and help preserve the planet through the intersection of environmental advocacy, social justice, and creativity. Hey, it's Jennifer. So speaking of plants and place, we'll be back again next week. But in the meantime, here's what I want you to do. Go outside and see for yourself. In this winter season in the Northern Hemisphere, when the bees and butterflies and beetles might be dormant, where are your birds? What trees and shrubs do the migrating or overwintering birds of your place tend to rest, to eat, to drink, to forage this time of year? Can you use these observations to invite greater biodiversity and just such relationships into your garden life? Answers to these questions are just some of the lessons we're offered when we attend to the natural history of the places where we are. I'm Jennifer Jewell. This is Cultivating Place. And we're back now to our conversation with Michael Kaufman and Justin Garwood, co-editors of The Klamath Mountains, A Natural History. We're talking about the education available to us all through paying attention to the complex natural histories in the places we live and how this kind of ongoing familiarizing ourselves in our places leads to better understanding, to better better conservation, and to true sustainability. As we come back, Justin is sharing more about the distinctive characteristics of this region, referred to as the Klamath Mountains, but inclusive of the traditional homelands of more than 14 Native American tribes, close to 10 separate mountain ranges, and more than 3,000 plant taxa as just a few measures of biodiversity. How important are these mountains? Um, well, there's lots of layers to that story, and and it took us a 500-page book to, to really um, <laughs> to describe it. But in general, um, there's lots of abiotic and biotic factors that that accumulate into the Klamath Mountains. And one, uh, just to get a, a sense of where these are, uh, we're talking about the southwest corner of Oregon and the northwest corner of Northern California, and the the Klamath Mountains kind of span those two regions with, with about a third of the range being in, in Oregon and two-thirds in California. And the rock of the Klamath Mountains is ancient. Uh, it goes back to 400 million years. You know, there's been deep time where this rock has been um, kind of on the edge of, of California, which it was built up by uh, continent building through these terrains that it, that it created through time as the oceanic plate subducts under the, the continental plate. So it's progressively older, the mountain range, as you go east from more of the coastal edge all the way uh, to the inland reaches where it meets with the Cascades Range. Mm-hmm. And being in the, the latitude that, that this mountain range is at, it has a really unique climate. And being in the proximity of the ocean, it has really um, localized weather patterns um, where the coastal side is essentially almost a rainforest, you could call it. Whereas inland, there's places that resemble, you know, high high desert areas of the Great Basin. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, you bring in um, all the water in the mountain range because we have these high peaks 
where you have both rain-fed and snow-fed um, streams and, and rivers, it really dissects the region. And that's just kind of like a, a broad overview of all the kind of physical attributes that are the foundation of the biological communities that exist here. And really early in the book, you make this clear to the average reader, me, that it is this really interesting pocket of biodiversity richness. And it is paralleled only by one other mountain range region in our country in the Southeast, which is fascinating. Will you talk a little bit about that, Justin? Yeah, so we're talking about the Southern Appalachian Range, and um, that connection was made pretty early by uh, Robert Whitaker, who was a pretty famous botanist in the in the 20th century. And Michael knows much more about his his legacy, but um, he found some interesting patterns with with serpentines and plants, and and wrote a bunch of seminal works that are the foundation of a lot of um, plant biogeography studies. Mm -hmm. uh, it's cited quite often. So he kind of made that initial connection. And then, and then there's lots of other connections that, that spin off, you, you know, the Appalachian Range is, is the epicenter of, of plethodontid salamanders, which are a terrestrial group of salamanders. Um, and the Klamath Range has uh, quite a diversity of terrestrial salamanders as well. Uh, we have 14 species of plethodontids. So there's that connection of, of, not only you know plants, but also vertebrate life. And a big reason why these connections are made is because these two regions were not inundated by glaciers or oceans through deep time. Mm. So you can think of them as islands where the landscape had changed quite dramatically around these mountain ranges, but the rock is really old and it, it stood the test of time. And these animals were able to find refuge in these places, but also evolve in these places. And so both regions, let me just make sure I'm getting this right, and either one of you can correct me, but what I think I understood through reading and then through what you just said is that these two regions in the continental United States represent these really interesting research locations and lenses through which we can understand a great deal more about evolution, adaptation, speciation, and then, you know, extrapolate from that into where are we going and, and how are we doing as we, as we go there. So they are lenses on how our world is doing and, and maybe what we can do to help our world do better. Am I, am I kind of getting that right with the, the richness of as you say, abiotic, ambiotic conditions that have provided these two oases? Absolutely. Uh, and they're, they're also, you know, arcs of biodiversity that, you know, with a rapidly changing climate, mm -hmm. there's species that have stood the test of time here. Michael can certainly um, expand on, on the conifer story of these two and how these two ranges right. both also have a really fascinating conifer story. So, they're, they're arcs of diversity, and, and, and they will be hospitable for species to persist into the future, even though our climate is rapidly changing. They'll be in different places, but, um, you know, animals might need to move up or down or, you know, into new habitats, but there will, there will be some refuges here um, and perhaps in the, in the Appalachian Range that will disappear in other areas. And I just want to make sure that people understand that when you say arc of diversity, you are saying A-R-K of diversity. And this is really important um, in terms of the lens you all bring to this book. Michael, would you like to add more about this sort of overall discussion of the mountains and their their importance as a microsm for so much more? Yeah, I think the best way to understand why this diversity is here is we have old species and we have new species. Mm -hmm. And that's referred to as paleodemics and neoendemics. Mm -hmm. uh, in a lot of ways, these, these things are only found, in, in many cases, these species are only found in certain areas, right? So consider the Brewer spruce or even the redwood, which is barely in the Klamath Range. But it, you know, we've just got this, like Justin said, this arc of uh, diversity and naturalness that's preserved here because of these things that he mentioned, the glaciation, the 
the Monadnocks above or the islands above, uh, all those har harsh changes that have happened in, in other areas. Um, we're also connected to China with some of these same plants. Mm. So things like spruces and firs, are, uh, uh, the mountains of China are a real hot spot, the Klamath Mountains and then the Southern Appalachians. So it's, it's a fascinating study in biogeography. And that's what we wanted to do in this book is we really wanted to celebrate that. And we wanted to tell these stories in ways that had never been accessible to people before, you know, so Justin was the expert in my opinion of distilling the science, the scientific papers. He really keeps up on that stuff. And he knew that a new genus of stonefly had been discovered mm -hmm. just recently in a high mountain spring. And so we, you know, we brought all these pieces of the science in and then we recruited 32 other authors to help us which i think was key you know when we first started thinking about this project i was thinking oh you know three or four other authors and we'll <laughs> knock this thing out i knew I, I knew i couldn't do it on my own right and then i found justin and then we started to realize you know what we're going to get every, we're going to do this the best way we can and uh, that was you know so we found those experts in geology in what you know the the fire cycles and climate and together with this this love of the Klamath, again, we were able to tell, I think, the most thorough and comprehensive story possible. Mm -hmm. And it really does serve as this sort of seed for how we look at diversity everywhere, both in um, our natural histories, but also in our in our human relationship to natural history. So Give us a little context, because I think when people hear the word diversity or biodiversity, it, it is such a big umbrella that it's sometimes hard to put um, a, a tangible understanding behind it. When we say this is a rich, you know, biodiversity arc, give us some numbers relative to any other place that you can think of. Just how biodiverse is this place? Sure. Well, I can start with the plants. Mm -hmm. um, we're still refining this list and new species are still being described, mm -hmm. but there's somewhere around 3,500 taxa of plants, which is species and subspecies and uh, varieties, which is just exceptional. I mean, for, for Basically, we're talking about an area the size of, say, New Hampshire or Vermont. And, and within that area, we have all these plants. The conifers are what I fell in love with. You know, I, like I said, I, I, I grew to love California and all these different places. And then I came to the Klamath Mountains and my mind was blown. I thought I knew trees and I didn't really know trees. <laughs> Once I got here, I was, I was humbled. Right. And, uh, you know, diversity of oaks. We have an endemic oak in the Klamath Mountains, which means it grows nowhere else in the world. Uh, not to mention uh, the influence of of these, all these species from basically five different ecological zones, whether it's the Central Valley, the Sierra Nevada, the Coast Range, the Cascades, or the Great Basin. So it's this, what we like to say is an ancient meeting ground of diversity. And those numbers, those numbers are, are quite comparable to the Southern Appalachians. But the thing with the Southern Appalachians is they've, that area has been even more stable than the Klamath Mountains over time. Mm -hmm. So the diversity is higher there. But, you know, we've got a amazing number of snails as this you know justin was at 70 species right uh, or 70 tax i should say uh it, it, you know some of about half of which are uh endemic or near endemic to the klamath mountains and the southern appalachians has again more but uh an astounding number so we're talking about temperate diversity right so not tropical not subtropical but this temperate zone you know just south of the 45th parallel where we get seasonality, but not super cold. And because of this temperate diversity here, it's it's just exquisitely uh, compared to just a few other places on earth. Yeah. And I think, again, to put that in context, I think California, which, you know, or the, the California floristic province is one of the, you know, 35 biodiversity hotspots on the planet. And as a whole floristic region, we have how how many you know, native plants, and then you put the Klamath in there, and it's a significant proportion of the plants that we identify as part of the floristic province are in this region, this one region of what is a much larger state. 
Yes, you're exactly right. I want to say within the California Floristic Province, there's over 5,000 tax uh, plants. It might be a little higher than that. But you're right. So we've got a a high percentage of that uh, within the Klamath Mountains. Right, which is pretty cool when you think about it, because what it maybe geographically takes up 10% of the state, maybe less, and it has over half of that diversity located right there. It's cool. It is cool. Impressive stuff. Yeah. Okay. So you you decide you want to, you know, add to your your love letter to the conifer diversity there, which was conifer country. And uh, you also have a beautiful book out from the press on manzanitas. And you start to like add layers to to this story that is the Klamath uh, Mountains and their natural history. How do you decide to go about organizing all of the experts you're going to need, organizing the sections um, and what gets included and doesn't get included? And I think in part, you 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 began to prepare the ground for what would become the book in a series of fantastic online uh, presentations held during the pandemic, was it 2020 or 2021 that I was watching those fantastic presentations, Michael? Yeah, we started that in 2020. And uh, we did a couple more in 2021 at the end of the pandemic, or, you know, as the pandemic was winding down. And that was really, I think, a key piece for us, because just, you know, like I said, Justin and I started this project in about 2014, 2015. Mm -hmm. He had this. He has this gathering called Winter Count, and it's fabulous. We all get together, talk about what we did the previous summer in the dark, darkest depths of winter. And I brought a little outline um, of this vision of this book, and I handed it out to everybody. And every, you know, most of the people at this gathering kind of looked away, like, "Oh God, <laughs> it looks overwhelming." <laughs> Justin basically came right to me and was like, "I'm in," and and so that started this whole movement, right? And and the reason that I wanted to start the movement was because I fell in love with the Sierra Nevada because there's like three or four natural histories, I think it's actually five natural mm-hmm. histories written for the Sierra Nevada. You know, and actually, uh, there's a new one out called The Sierra Nevada a Love Story, right? Because it's right, right, day. right. Beautiful book, yeah, yeah. So, so it's it's just this place that calls people to tell that story. And you know, Justin growing up here and me falling in love with the area when I moved up here was that calling card for us. And then, uh, Justin, I'll let you kind of tell a little bit more about how the authors and and the chapters evolved. Yeah. Um... Yeah, I still have that original outline. It was dated 122-2014. And Michael, he, it's about 75% of where we landed. And he, he did a pretty good job with that initial outline. And um, one thing that that's really interesting is we add we have two different kind of kind of different um, approaches to to introducing humans and how they they relate to the range. I had proposed doing a, a, you know, a science kind of like science history of the, of the Klamath mountains. Uh, Cause Michael already had a first people's chapter in the front. And I think it's kind of new to present, you know, two different kind of views of the world. One from a science um, history perspective of, of Western science arriving, but also, you know, first peoples um, and their, their worldview. Um, they're much different. And Michael really took on um, First Peoples and, and making those connections and making sure that story was said right. And he can definitely get more into that. Another element that we really didn't want to take on because it was probably the chapter that really gave us the most heartache was invertebrates. Because <laughs> mm-hmm. we know they're, you know, that's a really tough subject to get down to you know, we know there's 26 species of amphibians. We know there's 31 species of fish in the mountain range. There's thousands of invertebrates. So we had to find a way to, to, to get that chapter um, to be meaningful, um, but also to not be too thick. And I think, I think we, we've settled on, on, you know, I'm really happy with how it settled out because we really call out really interesting taxa that are relative locally and, and helping tell that local story. So um, yeah, that's, that's kind of how it developed. It was very organic, I must say. 
um, I took on a lot of um, bringing in some folks that are more oriented to, to you know, my disciplines of, of aquatic science, um, amphibians, reptiles. And, and, you know, Michael really came from this plant background and he also is a keen observer of mammals um, and birds. So I think, you know, both of us were able to bring in um, passionate people. And, you know, like Michael says, this project wasn't done quickly. He knew it was going <laughs> to take a long time because of Klamath Mountains to tell that story, to do it right. You know, it wasn't an endeavor to, to come out with some product. It really was. This is our love story. And, and it took, you know, 500 pages to tell it. This is Cultivating Place. We're in conversation this week with Michael Kaufman, educator and founder with his botanist wife, Allison, of the ecologically focused Backcountry Press, and Justin Garwood, environmental scientist with a focus on fisheries and aquatic life. The two men served as editors to a cohort of 34 expert contributors, creating the comprehensive new natural history of the Klamath Mountains. The Klamath Mountains are one of the most biodiverse temperate mountain ranges on Earth, with lessons for us all. Stay with us. We'll be back for more. Hey, so I know mid-January can be a bit of a slow time in ways both trying and gratifying. I want to take this time to say thank you to all of you who, come winter or summer, rain or shine, offer support to the growing work of Cultivating Place. Thank you for your contributions that do everything from help us cover the costs of online servers and research tools to curating the programs coming your way. It's been a mind opener for me to work on this conservation series, and we have some great additional series coming up for Black History Month, for Women's History Month. We have a series on seed growing at scale and a new one on artists in and of the garden. It's all about growing and how we as gardeners can and do grow the world and each other better. So thank you for supporting the work through donations, through encouragement, through being here, listening, and for sharing it forward. Thank you for being a gardener of such heart. I'm Jennifer Jewell. This is Cultivating Place. And we're back now to our conversation with Michael Kaufman and Justin Garwood, co-editors of The Klamath Mountains, A Natural History. As we come back, Michael is sharing the importance to him of having the first section of the book be written by and representing first peoples of this region, whose ancestry there dates back millennia. How in knowing them better, and in coming to understand the term natural history through their worldviews and cultural values, his own understanding of place-based conservation and what it means to be a naturalist changed completely, including the truth that biophysical diversity promotes cultural diversity, and vice versa. There was a steep learning curve here, and um, you know we brought in first people that we were close with, and then we started to get to meet new people through this process. And for me, I think the most meaningful part of this project for for how the project turned out, at least, was um, sitting down with some Karuk elders on their front porch in the heart of COVID, and. Um, getting to discuss natural history with them and their perspective on natural history versus Western mm-hmm. science perspective and how that related to the work in progress. And they were amazing with that perspective. And some of it hurt, mm-hmm. hurt bad, uh, some of the things they said. But because of that time that they spent with me and the feedback and editing they provided on some of the early chapters, this is a, it turned into much more meaningful and important book. You know, one thing that I remember them saying to me was, you don't understand what an oak woodland 
on the Klamath River really is. An oak woodland is a village site that people had lived at for millennia. And the plants that are all there were brought there by our ancestors. And we have sculpted that biodiversity. Our culture has, has, has created that garden that we see today. And now we call it wilderness or wild. But it's, it's not. It's just it's the place that people loved for thousands of years. And then now it's maybe a, a roadside picnic area. But seeing that, that the Klamath Mountains was, was tended as a, as a wild place, for the benefit of a culture or many cultures mm-hmm. for that matter. Um, and still, you know, yeah. is, is sculpted by, by the first peoples. And it's, and it's, that process is returning too, which is a whole yeah. other piece of that we end with in the yeah. book, the future and, and all the stewardship that's returning. But that was just really for me, humbling, but also um, uh, one of the greatest learning experiences that I've had in, in, in my life, I'd say. Yeah. And again, I think many plants people will, this will resonate with them because it is a, um, a perspective and a worldview that once you see that it wasn't included earlier and you then see what happens when it is included, you know, and, and I can cite, you know, sitting in my own home reading Robin Wall Kimmerer's uh, Braiding Sweetgrass and having my whole worldview like totally blown open um for the better and once once you get there you can't unsee that and that is just that is such a gift yeah it really is and i think that that that's the important part for this vision of future sustainability is that you know with with this love story comes more awareness we hope and more attentiveness and then how does how do we then create you know when for one example is um the wilderness, right? And how we kind of have this Western philosophy that wilderness should be left alone. But I think we're seeing more and more in this world, if we if we leave places alone and we don't tend them the way they've been tended for millennia by the first peoples, that it's an unhealthy balance of too many conifers or uh, right. you know, whatever it might be, right. whatever the story is for a particular place. And so that's really where I hope that that this book leads us and, and it develops more of a, a tight community between mm-hmm. and among um, places within the Klamath and then that uh, a, a unified vision of sustainability and stewardship. Yeah. And so, you know, going back to the table of contents, um, you have these three opening chapters. They're not called chapters, but three opening sections, the preface, the prologue, the Klamath Mountains as a teacher, which is a a collaboration between multiple authors. You then go to first peoples, Western science arrives, the some of the abiotic influence uh, in the geologic history, the climate, the mountains of water, the hydrology of these mountains is is so key and important and interesting and has so much to teach us about uh, the way water water lives and and flows and and doesn't. So hugely interesting, especially in California or or anywhere in the West, anywhere in the world it should be. Um, we move to fire ecology. We move to the sort of non-flowering plants, um, you know, pre-flowering plant communities, then to the like fascinating plant communities, which is what draws me to these this incredible diversity. Um and then to insects and pathogens, the the big chunky chapter on invertebrates, and then vertebrates, uh, and then that that hopeful final chapter on change and stewardship. You know, I, I've just like read the table of contents as, as you heard, but maybe talk a little bit about um, the fact that all of these interwoven is what actually creates a natural history, and all of these intertwining is what creates the places that we live. And, you know, what's, I think for me, again, as, as an average non-scientific person, what's beautiful about this is it, it breaks them down so that they are understandable, but then it puts them back together so that we see that we cannot do anything or live anywhere without all of these being there. Yeah. Let's let Justin talk about how, what the water systems sort of weave it all together. Justin, does that sound good? 
Sure. And just to add to the table of contents, uh, just a couple notes is that, you know, the book also has a chapter on the chapters of fire ecology and then forest insects and pathogens. These are, these are disturbance regimes. Um, and uh, Michael had those on the original outline. And I thought that was just awesome because, you know, natural history should also include this natural disturbance regimes, things that change our landscape, things that change our plant communities. Um, so it adds a little more, you know, these, these dynamic processes into our original like geology and, 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 you know, rivers and, and reptiles, you know, here's some disturbance that, that causes those, that, that, that influences all the, the biotic world. Um, and even even water, um, yeah. The Klamath Mountains have um, just a super high density of amazing rivers. It's it starts up north with the Rogue River, uh, then goes down to the Klamath River Basin, which is the third largest river on the west coast of North America, and then you go down to uh, you got the Smith River and the Chetco that are largely in, in these in these kind of serpentine barren landscapes. Um, coastal streams, and then you go down to uh, you go over to the to the Upper Sacramento River. There's a little corner of the Upper Sacramento that's the most ancient Klamath rock, and and a bunch of rivers collide there. And the the fascinating thing from a from a biologist perspective for me that studies you know fishes and amphibians quite often, and and also now snails. Apparently, I'm a snail fan because I thought there was only like seven species, and now there's <laughs> um, all these you know the snails and the salamanders are you know because salamanders require water they, they breathe through their skin they need to be in, in wet landscapes and same with snails and wet landscapes you can think well there's lots of rivers that's great but actually rivers are barriers for many species like a terrestrial salamander or a, or a snail that doesn't really have great capabilities of, of swimming across the river so it creates a lot of uh, barriers for these animals and then the climate regime uh being mediterranean like you know warm dry summers uh these animals have to retreat to to wet areas that are underground or under you know down logs so it creates this really fragmented landscape so although we we talk about the klamath mountains as this this refuge of diversity it's also it's a very you know, you know, the dissected landscape for some species, and that creates this this biodiversity from being isolated through deep time. Um, you know, you think about a lot of mount, uh, areas that draw people, like Yellowstone, or you know, the parks with the big megafauna. You see the big bison and stuff. It's very simple for the average person on a trip to just go look at you know a field of bison and be be really impressed. Uh, the Klamath Mountains, and partly why this book I think is so important, is it brings out a ton of biodiversity that people, even well-trained biologists, are going to be really fascinated with because a lot of stuff is hiding. Yeah, it's very, um, it's hiding under our feet. Yeah. Um, it's hiding in serpentine rock. All the plant diversity uh, is is off the charts in in serpentine barrens. Um, that's very unique. Um, and Michael can get into why, but we, you know, having this dissected landscape um, just created a lot of a lot of homes for for different species to to persist, but also to speciate because they're isolated. Yeah, well, and I, I can um, attest to you know just the great joy of visiting uh, in the summer. Uh, we were there camping this year a couple of times and a couple of times the past couple of years and, and you can never see all the plants like they're they're it's just crazy the diversity and i i had to like bend down so many times to take pictures that i could hardly walk after this last camping trip this summer um it was it was phenomenal and and so fun and this book just makes it like a fantastic journey so that you can look things up and try and understand relationships when you're there and um it, it's it's really a great uh a guide and companion when you're visiting the area michael talk to us more about you know what you would pull out of that table of contents for people sure i think 
for me, what was the most eye-opening were the chapters that Justin really headed up. And I think I keep saying this to him and he tells me playing community is the best chapter, but I think amphibians <laughs> is the best chapter because of the amazing stories that he tells. And he tells these, he not only does he dive into the stories of the individual species, which are fascinating, some of which have just recently been described amazing. in the last 10 years, but he also dives into the through four different regions within the Klamath Mountains that are real hotspots for amphibian diversity. Why they're hotspots. Sometimes you wouldn't even assume that they could be hotspots like uh, uh, some of the limestone and the very uh, eastern Klamath Mountains. Um, three or four species of amphibians, often with ranges um, that are extremely small, several square miles in some instances. Um, and that has to do with the caves that are there too, and these uh, these places that the the creatures have been able to hide out and go underground through climate change, and then reemerge, you know, through the seasons as well. So that's just a really fascinating story to me. Um, and then, you know, I have to be honest with you, the plant communities chapter was a I lot bet. of fun mm-hmm. to do with uh, with your friend Julie Kierstead and Julie right. Evans from the California Native Plant Society, who's one of the vegetation experts in the state. Um, and then also Michael Murray, who studied the Meadowlands extensively. And I also added John Sawyer as a co-author because of a lot of the work that we did together before he passed. Um, I was able to incorporate into the book. But it's hard to distill the patterns that, that we see. I mean, there's so many vegetation communities, but I was uh, we were able to tell that story in sort of 10 broad sweeping patterns. Um, and, and like you said, when you go and you explore into the Klamath and you see uh, a meadowland or you see a subalpine sky island, as we like to call them in the book, there's, there's so much amazing diversity within each of these landscapes. And then there's a little bit of crossover mm-hmm. between them as well. And then just understanding how those patterns either repeat themselves in the case of meadowlands or maybe don't repeat themselves because of the rarity of the high elevation sky islands. Um, it gives you that new appreciation for um, the diversity and the uniqueness of the climate. Yeah. So when you get to the final chapter, right, you, you, you have explained to us, the two of you, you know, the, this, these overlapping um, narratives on all of these different layers of what makes a place a place and all of these different lives um, that are being lived and how this region that you have focused on, um, your your love for this place, is also this lens on much bigger eco regions that we think of, whether it's you know the Sierra, the 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 Valley, the Great Basin, the um, Pacific Northwest forests, the coast that that they all come together here and that they have offered this refuge for all of this diversity and adaptation um and again it's all a verb it's all happening um when we think about our current fears all of them justified for the disturbance regimes that are coming how worried should we be about this? What are the lessons that we take from it? And what are our hopes for this, this part of the world and or what it can teach us? And I will let either one of you, you take that and, and you, you take this on in change and stewardship towards the end of the book. Justin, why don't you take it? Well, our goal all along was to, to make sure this book was appealing to everyone. Um, I think, you know, natural, like Michael says, natural history is one of the few things that anybody can do. Anybody can walk outside and and start experiencing their world at a deeper level. Climate change is a defining topic that that is going to consume any other topic when it comes to change in this region. And just like everywhere else, you know, I, I happen to study, we have a, a piece in there on on the last glacier of the Klamath Mountains. And I've been studying that glacier as an, as an amateur for 13 years. And this fall I went there and for the first time, the glacier had melted away out of the 13 mm. years. And it's been there for centuries. Um, so mm. seeing that even though it's a, it was a, it's a tiny glacier from a world perspective, locally um, it, you know, it contributes a lot to the, to the local ecosystems all the way down to the rivers. Um, and seeing that glacier disappear was pretty profound. And I knew it was going to happen. It, we've been in so many droughts. 
And, you know, at the same time, um, you know, there's a beetle that was, that was described on that glacier in 2008. It's called Nebria predicta. And it was described um, by Dave Kavanaugh from Cal Academy of Sciences. And he predicted it was there because it was one of the few cold places on in the Klamath Mountains that, that it's a cold loving beetle that loves ice and, and cold areas. And he predicted it was there, um, hence the name Predicta. Uh, and yeah, it was there. He, he sent somebody up there and they described it. And my, my point of the, to this is that he posed a question in a web, webinar that we had, we were, I was talking about with this glacier decline. And he goes, well, will the, will the beetle go extinct or will it find a new habitat? And that really was an interesting thing. I didn't really think about it because the glacier is only about 700 years old. It's from the Little Ice Age. And the beetle was obviously around before that. So the mm. question is, is, is are we in such a new zone that, that things like that are going to disappear? But I'm kind of on the side of, of, his, of you know, his optimism in that, that perhaps it's going to find another cold habitat in the, in the Klamath. We just haven't found it there yet. So um, I think, and like I said earlier, the Klamath Mountains are very uh, resilient. Um, you know, through deep time, lots of lots of change. And what we hope this book does with this last chapter was to just bring attention to this mountain range. It's been overlooked in many ways by many really important um, folks that cataloged the West early on. But, you know, it's it, it just had to be it had to be brought together in this in this text um, by defining the landscape through geology. So we had to put boundaries on it. Me growing up in Lewis in California, I, I knew the Upper Trinity River really well, but that's only one of many mountain sub mountain ranges in the Klamath. And I think we get that kind of local view of things. And I didn't realize growing up that there was the Siskiyous or, or the Marbles even, you know, which are pretty close as the crow flies. So I hope mm -hmm. this, this, this text kind of puts a bow around the Klamath range and allows people to really understand it's much bigger than what you see in the play, your normal haunts is actually um, quite a connected landscape with, you know, with very interesting um, flora and fauna and geology and everything in between. Yeah. Yeah. Michael, what about you as we, as we look forward and the kind of lessons that you take away from, um, from the process of the book, from these many years of study, what you hope people will take away about this incredible region um, that you call the Klamath Mountains and includes all of these sub areas and um, and your hopes for it moving forward. I've got to see the Klamath Mountains through their eyes. I've also got it to see it through the eyes of um, some of the native people that live here from that ancient perspective. And then I've got to see it change in 20 years. I've got to see some of these major fires wipe out entire stands of trees that I've studied. And all of those, that, that's the most alerting part to me, right? But I also, I also know that people are caring, like we've talked about. There's um, fire that's getting put back on the landscape to communities to help uh, return forest health. That's a huge step. There's also a lot more people um, working Klamath Mountains to document what's happening uh, with change. Professors at Cal Poly Humboldt in particular, the California Native Plant Society has been focusing more uh, energy on the vegetation mm -hmm. and community mapping level so that we, I mean, we, we just need to know what mm -hmm. we have here, right? And we still don't really know everything right. that we have. Um, so once we know what we have, we're going to be able to make better choices about how to manage things. And some of those choices are going to have to come quick. We're going to have to figure it out. And I think um, one of the only benefits that I can see to the 20% decline in the giant sequoias over the last two years because of the fires are some of the actions and the immediate actions that people are discussing to, to save the giant sequoias. And I think the same, we're maybe a few years behind, hopefully many years behind that rapid change up here. But what are we going to do for the Sky Islands when there's no more up for the foxtail pines and the white bark pines? Or what are we going to do for um, the Cascades frogs that are maybe uh, the lake basin that they've always inhabited or drying up a little bit? So are there proactive management things that we can do? And Justin's a huge part of this. He's, he's doing amazing work right now with fish removal. You know, people have been putting fish in high elevation lakes mm -hmm. so they can catch them. 
Well, they're not native and they eat the frogs and they decrease. Justin's proving that these invasive species are decreasing biodiversity. They're affecting uh, food chains and they're going in. I'm so proud of him for doing this. They're going in, they're taking those fish out of there and he can speak more to this, but the, the biodiversity is responding immediately. Uh, the glacier disappeared, but he found a pond below the glacier, and there's Cascades frogs that have already pioneered that pond. So there's a resiliency here, and um, that is the hopeful piece um, that we continue to know and love that change, but also figure out ways to act to help um, as best we can as stewards. And I think, you know, so much of this uh, comes back to us as humans knowing more because we care about something little like me caring. I mean, not that they're little, but me caring about the plants. And because I care about the plants, all of a sudden, when someone shows me how the frogs and the the rocks and the, you know, insects are connected to the health of my plants that I love, then the whole picture comes into greater view. And then we as a species can become less invasive and competitive uh, with these other lives and much more collaborative and um, and symbiotic, we have to hope. And your book gives me a great deal of hope for our capacity in just that. Thank you so much. Thanks, Jennifer. It has been a pleasure to speak with you both. And uh, if there's anything you would like to add, add it now. Uh, a call out to listeners, any calls to action. I would love to have you share them. Well, sure. One thing I think that's interesting that we have going is an iNaturalist community science project called the Biota of the Klamath Mountain Geomorphic Province. It's a little bit long and, and clunky, but basically... We want to know what's here. and We want people to help us document that through iNaturalist. And one of the things that John Sawyer, my mentor at Cal Poly, asked me before he passed away was that I never forget to document even the most common of, of plant species when I find them. Because in, within the Klamath Mountains, it's, it, it's really hard to get places, right? And not a lot of people, like Justin said, uh, went in and did science, so to speak, in the Klamath. Now it's happening more and more people are, are out and about, particularly in certain wilderness areas. But just just documenting the common and the rare, um, documenting the health of the common and the rare, and, uh, and participating in some of these community science activities and platforms that connects us uh, through the interwebs, but also through a, a beautiful mountain range. Yeah. Great. Uh, we will add links to that project on the, the web posting for the episode. Excellent um, tip for listeners. And Justin, any any other calls to action for you? Uh, just viewing this, this book as the starting point for understanding this mountain range. We learned so much in developing this book, and there's so much more to learn. We obviously couldn't include everything but right. we, we, we think we've, we've, we've got a great starting point for people to really view this mountain range with a whole new, exciting perspective. And um, I hope it, it manifests into, into really good things. We, the mantra of this project was, was to produce a, a, a product that is positive through and through. And it doesn't diverge into any kind of taking sides or getting into any hot button issues. It really was like, this is a celebration. And we hope that it's a starting point for people to really, you know, expand their horizons on understanding this important region we love and, and live in. Thank you both very much for being guests on the program. It has been a great pleasure to speak with you. Thanks for having us. Thanks, Jennifer. Michael Kaufman is a research plant ecologist, educator, and founder with his botanist wife, Allison, of the ecologically focused Backcountry Press. Justin Garwood is an environmental scientist for the California Department of Fish and Wildlife with a focus on fisheries. Michael and Justin have spent the better part of the last decade curating and editing a cohort of 34 expert contributors to create the first comprehensive natural history of the Klamath Mountains. The Klamath Mountains, a natural history, describes the Klamath Mountains geomorphic province of Northwest California and Southwest Oregon. 
Speaking of plants and place, we'll be back next week. But join us again next week when we focus in on a slightly different conservation project, one dedicated to the conservation of heritage apple trees in a heritage apple growing epicenter in conversation with the Montezuma Orchard Restoration Project in the farthest southwest corner of Colorado. Listen in next week. Cultivating Place is a co-production of North State Public Radio, a service of CAP Radio licensed to Chico State Enterprises. Cultivating Place is made possible in part by listeners just like you, including most recently Sarah Masumi, Doug Christie, Maureen DeCombe, and David Godshall. We are also made possible through support from the Caddo Shaw Foundation, empowering women and helping preserve the planet through environmental advocacy, social justice, Justice and creativity. We could not do this creative work without all of your support. Thank you. The Cultivating Place team includes producer and engineer Matt Fiddler, with weekly tech and web support from Angel Haracha. We're based on the traditional and present homelands of the Machupta Indian tribe of the Chico Rancheria. Original theme music is by Ma Muse, accompanied by Joe Craven and Sam Bevan. Cultivating Place is distributed nationally by PRX, Public Radio Exchange. Until next week, enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell.